You're listening to Faith and Fostering, the podcast where people of faith chat about foster care in the Australian context to encourage, edify and educate others along the journey. Welcome back to Faith and Fostering. It's great to have you with us again today. This is part two of a two-part episode. So if you haven't heard last week's episode, then I suggest you go back and have a listen to it as that's going to set you up for the discussion that's about to start. For those of you who have, let's launch in with part two of this interview. Welcome back to Faith and Fostering. We have the lovely Stacey with us, um, talking all things foster care, research, and um, yeah, supporting carers. And Stacey, I um, I think, you know, you're so well positioned to be able to um, both speak into this area from a, a research point of view and a, a learning educational point of view, but then also that on the ground experience. I imagine that makes you quite unique in the fields that you move in. Have you found many other people that have those crossovers? No, to be honest, I haven't. I, I've met, um, there is a researcher in South Australia who is also a carer and a psychologist and a, a academic researcher. And other than him, I haven't come across anyone else who's kind of got the same um, package happening. But again, it comes back to capacity. And I've been really fortunate to be given the ability to to conduct research and to, to think that way and to communicate to key stakeholders and decision makers the research that, that I conduct. And because I have that capacity, I feel like I have that responsibility and I'm, I enjoy doing it. So that's, that's a great thing. So that makes me really, really happy. I love to, more than anything though, out of everything that I do, I think the thing I enjoy the most is um, running workshops for carers. I love to be in a room with other people who have more kids than me. <laughs> who may have also had a shoe thrown at them that morning because the kids couldn't get the shoes on and, you know, or meltdown because the wrong sauce was on the bread before um, while making lunches and understanding that I'm not the only one who has to deal with some of those challenges. And um, I think, I think we should do more um, in terms of getting carers together. It worries me when I meet carers who don't have um, other friends who just get it. They don't yeah. need to be someone that you hang out with every day, but to have someone that you can ring up and say, oh, I just had this conversation with my caseworker and I'm so frustrated. Or, you know, I we had you know, biological family didn't come to a visit again and we've had a, had a breakdown or whatever. It's just nice to be able to talk to someone who understands. And I think all carers should have some sort of buddy or mentor to help sustain them through this process. And it's, you know, it doesn't end. So my eldest, my eldest son in care is almost 20. He'll be 20 next month. And he's still living at home with me. Yeah. And I'm very, very proud of him. He's very successful Sydney train guard now. He's finished his training. He's making good money. He's making good choices with his money and spending time with friends and stuff. Um, but I'll be his mom for life. That's the commitment that I've made to him. And he knows that. So, but what was really interesting to me was when he was, in year 11, he actually came to me one day. He said, Mom, what happens when I turn 18? I said, what do you mean? He said, what happens when I turn 18? I said, you mean like a party? You want a party like you're older? You know? He goes, no, like where will I live? And I'm like, well, you'll live wow. here, won't you? Yeah. And it was really interesting. He'd been with me since he was two, and I've been consistently in his life. And I never thought I needed to have that conversation with him because I just assumed he knew that he was always welcome. So his um, younger brothers and sisters, I've been sitting them down in year 11 going, now, just so you know, you're, <laughs> you're here for life. Right? 
So well, I actually do want you to move out one day, but um, yeah. So it was really interesting, even though we mm. have that attachment. He there is still an otherness about him because society sees him as other. So yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, actually. Where do you think some of that comes from? Because obviously the things that you communicate in your family and that you are um, living in speak at a, you know, speak a truth. Um, And then for him to have some of those questions, do you think that comes from just knowing the fact that, oh, you know, I've come into this family a different way? Do you think it's friends or do you think it's reading? I mean, it probably could come from multiple sources, but what do you think it is that sows those things that makes you feel different? I think that I think it's multiple factors and, and in his case he's he's quite an advocate himself. So he's on the youth um, consult for change committee and he works with the children's court as well as a, a voice for children in care. So I think he's very aware of the structures and the and the commitment that's made, you know, and the time limited duration of of childhood and the fact that, you know, once they turn 18, then, well, not now, you can change things a little bit now to 21 in New South Wales, but once they turn 18, when he turned 18, it was, that's it, you know, we're done with you. We don't have responsibility for you anymore. Not necessarily me, but the system and the system is what put him with me. I think that, you know, the public doesn't understand. You don't ever see anything nice on television about, at a home care, even when we had our recent picnic back in September, only one television station covered it. That was Channel 7, and there was very little said. Um, and yet we see foster care is vilified all the time. Mm. If a foster care does something wrong, they're quick to put that on the television, but they're very slow to talk about the good work that, that most carers are doing. Yeah. And it's the same thing with kids. You know, kids who are kids who are born prenatally substance exposed or kids who experience trauma um, their brains have wired differently. They have different neurologic um, anatomy to people who haven't had those experiences. And the symptoms that they have as a result of that appear to the untrained eye like poor behavior. Mm. So rather than recognizing that it's a neurologic dysfunction, we see it as bad behavior and we punish children for a symptom of their neurologic disability. And I find that really, really distressing. But that causes stigma to be really, um, allocated to these kids. And I think they, they read into that. And when they hear it enough, they believe it. Yeah. I, I often use the analogy, you know, if you have a child and let's say you have a child in primary school who is the victim of a car accident and he sustains a, um, an injury to his spine and is rendered unable to walk because of the neurologic damage. The school will rally around that child and fundraise and get wheelchairs and put in lifts and ramps and make sure that child feels loved and supported. That's a neurologic disability. And the symptom of that is paralysis. And we see that and we have empathy. Hmm. But when you have a neurologic disability that's related to trauma or prenatal substance exposure, when the symptom is impulse control difficulties or poor um, mental flexibility or poor logic and reasoning that translates into what appear to be bad behaviors, we punish it. Yeah. And it just seems really wrong to me. Yes, absolutely. And as you're talking, all I can think is like education, 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 education for the carers, education for the teachers. Um, have you found that to be something that is moving things forward or is that quite a difficult thing to achieve? 
Um, that's an interesting question. It's it's not just the carers, it's not just the teachers, it's also the caseworkers, it's healthcare yeah. professionals, it's sporting coaches. You know, when you got a kid who's got poor impulse control and they just want to be on the field all the time, but they they end up being the, the kid who's a little pain instead of, you know, being encouraged to participate. There's a lot of education that's required and there's no one who's actually doing it on a large scale. In yeah. fact, yesterday I sat in on a, a an interview with um, a dentist because we're doing some work mm. around um, oral health for kids in out-of-home care. And the dentist was talking about not understanding the system, not understanding you know who's allowed to consent for treatment for kids who isn't, or how to work with the children in, in the chair. You know, children who've experienced trauma, they're very vulnerable. And one of the most vulnerable positions in the world is sitting backwards with your mouth open in a dental chair. And so a lot of the kids really have terrible behaviors and end up under general anesthetic for basic treatment because the dentists don't know how to manage or work with trauma-informed care. So there's a real need to educate all of society. And, you know, it took a pandemic to teach everybody how to wash their hands (laughs) or to cough into their elbow. I wish that we could have people understanding trauma and treating one another with the principles of trauma-informed care universally, just like universal precautions, you know, wearing your mask, washing your hands and things like that. I'd like to see that happen one day. Yeah, definitely. I do know of an organization um, in the States that has sort of started the ball rolling on some of that, but they call trauma-free world. And I think very much that goal of education um, across society um, as much as possible. And they obviously do quite a lot of online things, but you still have to go looking for it. It's not, re- it's not, yeah, nowhere near um, something that just kind of comes along. It's certainly a, a still a niche area, I think, that people have to go and research and find out more. And really, I think. You know, even in my experience, it wasn't until we became carers um, that, yes, yeah, suddenly you're like, oh, what is what is this all about? What is trauma? What is, and you go on this great learning journey. And so it certainly is, um, yeah, a whole new world, I think, for many people of understanding. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, not everyone has the capacity to sit through a, a generalized trauma-informed care workshop or lecture and extrapolate what they need to their yeah. specific contexts. And that's definitely one of the things we heard in the interview yesterday from the dentist was, you know, her colleagues need something that's specific to how they practice. And so that's going to take, a, I think, a lot of work moving forward. But it's not just one of the other things, too, is I think kids need to understand trauma. I think yeah. as, as they grow up and as they get older and they begin to understand that they react differently they can get better control of their triggers and they can better understand themselves and inform the people around them. And as a mom, you know, to kids with a history of trauma, I see, I see my responsibility is helping them to be able to cope in a society that doesn't understand their disability. Yeah. So giving them the skills that they need to, to navigate everyday life when the people around them just don't understand what they're doing. And that's, yeah that's no easy task you know yes and actually I was going to ask just to push down into that a little bit more what are some of the things that you have seen work in your family in helping your give your children a voice to be able to have those conversations 
Well, I think one of the most important things for a carer to understand is that is is the concept of executive function. So executive function is our ability to control our impulses, to remember more than one instruction, and to be mentally flexible. So that's the ability to adapt when things change. When you think about kids with a trauma history, they usually have very poor short-term working memory, can't follow more than one or two instructions at a time. They usually have very poor impulse control, and they usually have very poor mental flexibility. They rely on routine for their comfort. So what what I've done with my children, and it's always got to be age appropriate because they're all different ages, is I've tried really hard to give them strategies to help them to to support them in their deficits. So, for example, if you have a poor short-term working memory and you go to a friend's house and your mom says, be home by five o'clock, and the child comes home at 6.30 because they forgot to look at their watch, that's not an excuse for a child who has poor mental um, executive function. That's legitimate. They don't have the capacity to remember. So I know a lot of carers don't like mobile phones, but a mobile phone is a great tool when you use it for good and you help them to set the alarm on their phone before they go to their friend's house so that when the alarm goes off, they know it's time to go home. Um, Learning to adapt helping kids to understand that when things change, it's not the end of the world and giving them the capacity to recognize which things they have control over and which things they don't is really important. Um, In terms of um, impulse control, that's something that can also be trained, but for some kids, they might need additional help to do that sort of thing. But creating places where they can practice these skills that are safe is what's really important because the more you do them, the more likely they are to learn those capacities. Yeah, that's so good having um, that understanding. For you, that um, wealth of knowledge that you now have to help your children um, learn how to use their voice and have that understanding, do you think that it's achievable for other carers, you know, like you were saying, educators, teachers, dentists? I mean, I know that... Yeah, I'm trying to think of even what I'm trying to ask, but how do you think it's it's rolled out into those spaces? Do you think that, um, you know, how do you think you can empower that more, that understanding and those um, implementing some of those, that knowledge? I'm not sure how to empower it more. I think um, that some of that awareness in terms of professionals can be built into their undergraduate training. So, for example, the caseworkers that we have who work with children in care don't get basic child development training. They're they're taught about systems and they're taught about theory, but they're not given practical information related to child development per se, because a social worker can work with children or in aged care or with disability. So their course is so broad that they don't get given that sort of information. And I think um, trauma-informed care and the concept of trauma can apply to so many different situations that I think professionals like social workers nurses, medical professionals, allied health, education, should all be given some sort of exposure to um, what trauma is and how it impacts people. Because it's not just children. I'm sure that you, after having undergone training and worked with your own children, that you've been able to recognize adults in your life who suffer from trauma, who have yeah. triggers and who may not always respond in the way that they should, rather that they react than respond. And so I think having that basic understanding is something that would be really good. I also think, again, 
that it's good to train teenagers. I think teenagers should have that basic understanding. Some kids do psychology um, as an elective when they're in high school. I think this should be part of that component. I think the more we talk about it, the more we address it, the better. I, I think about our current situation um, in Australia where we're seeing so much on the news related to the war in the Ukraine and now what's happening in the Middle East and media's inability to censor a lot of what they show is very triggering um, for our veterans, for example. And I think that if the media is going to portray images like that, then they also have a duty of care to be raising awareness about being trauma-informed. Um, New South Wales Health is another example. They have an overarching trauma-informed framework as part of their policy. But if you were to speak to any of the um, people who work there, their understanding of trauma would be very rudimentary. Um, and yeah. so I think we've got a long way to go. I think there, there's enough research to demonstrate the importance of it, but we have a long way to go to make a common language, language for everyone. Yeah. And what do you think are some of the things that will help um, broaden out that common language? Like, yeah, yeah. So, well, I've been invited on numerous occasions to school to provide workshops and trainings um, and teachers and parents have found that really useful. When you have a carer or a parent who understands trauma and a teacher who doesn't, and they're kind of going head to head because they're not agreeing on the, the strategies and the solutions that should be implemented for a child. When you have an outsider come in and say, okay, this is trauma. This is what, what trauma looks like. This is some of the behaviors that go with it. Here are some strategies that may or may not be helpful in your situation can kind of help um, in those, those smaller communities. Again, embedding it into um, the curriculum for professional development, offering um, continuing professional development related to it, and just talking more openly about it, talking about it, writing about it, discussing it in yeah. social media, raising awareness, I think is really important. The more we talk about it, the more we acknowledge it, the better, better it will be. There's been a big shift in the last several years as it relates to mental health, particularly since COVID. So if we're talking about the impact of isolation yeah. on mental health, why don't we talk about the impact on of childhood trauma on mental health? One of the things that goes hand in hand with that is there's a real focus in, in practice and in research related to adverse childhood experiences ever since the Felitti study in 1998 in the United States where we identified a correlation between certain childhood experiences like abuse, neglect, and um, loss of a parent, incarcerated parent, things like that, and adult physical and mental health outcomes and found that the more ACEs or ad adverse childhood experiences you have, the more likely you were to have poor adult outcomes. But there's been a real shift in thinking and theory recently, more so focusing on positive childhood experiences. And initially this came as looking for a mitigating um, potential to if you've had bad stuff happen, if you have good stuff happen too, then maybe the outcomes won't be so bad. And that is what the research shows, but that's still approaching it from a very uh, deficit-based um, perspective. What we would like to see, the researchers I work with and myself in particular would like to see is more focus on promoting the positive irrespective of whether or not there's been negative. Focusing on making mm -hmm. sure that the child is having positive experiences so that they can have the best possible outcomes, not waiting for something to go wrong and then doing something good to try and mitigate it. And the research that's been done at the Tufts Medical Institute in the United States has identified four building blocks 
um, which they call the HOPE framework, healthy outcomes from positive experiences. And those building blocks um, are based on research. And these are the things that they say children need in their lives in order to get the most optimal outcomes. And I'll just quickly share those with you. One is positive relationships, having healthy attachment, obviously, with peers and and with with adults, having um, safe environments to play and learn in, having, um, watch me forget all of a sudden, having um, the opportunity for social and emotional growth um, so that they can develop in a way that's healthy. And I'm forgetting all of a sudden one of the building blocks. But one of the really interesting things in their research that they found was that children who have two adults in their life other than their parents that take a genuine interest in them do better than children who do not have that. And when we're talking earlier about the extended family, the biological family and the foster family, those children have the opportunity for that. And that's a really positive thing. Yeah. Again, it just brings us full circle back to that idea of community, doesn't it? And having a community that um, is strong both in the foster carer's life, the child's life, the family's life. Have you got any recommendations um, on carer communities that you can share? I just think it's important to have them. There are a lot of carer communities online if you're a carer who can't get mm-hmm. get out, but be be strategic about which ones you join. Some of the care communities that are online can be quite negative. And really what you want to find is a community that's uplifting and positive, who will let you vent when you need to, but not judge you for being honest about the feelings that you're having. And, you know, making sure that you have someone who understands what you're going through, someone else who can understand what it's like to give your heart and soul, be frustrated about it, but never consider taking it back. Or if you are in the unfortunate position where a placement breaks down, you need to have a community around you who can support you through that too. Because the grief that carers experience when that happens is significant and it's very real and it's often not acknowledged by the rest of the community as being legitimate. So finding a care community is really important. And it might only be one or two people, but it's still worth looking for. Yes, certainly. That's certainly been our experience, finding a community of people who understand what you're going through. And um, I certainly know with, um, yeah, the art communities that are around the nation as well. And, I mean, they can, they're fluid, so people can start them in all sorts of places, wherever you are, um, has been a real support for us. And we've found a very positive environment as well. Um, I think certainly shaping it around some of the things that, I guess, again, you know, as believers that we share has been positive too. So being able to pray for one another and some of those things has been really beneficial for us. Mm. Um, but I feel like we could do about another seven episodes, Stacey. I feel <laughs> like I've only, I haven't even scratched the surface on, you know, all sorts of things that I would like to learn from you. But thank you so much for your time. And um, thank you so much for your research and your, you know, advocacy in this area. It's it's incredibly important. And um, yeah, we hope that we will definitely be hearing more from you in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me, Terry. And remember until next time, every child deserves a family. 